You're listening to the Touch of Flavor podcast, episode 40. You're talking about putting your fuck parts in my head where my brain lives. You know, in nature, only a handful of creatures made for life. But isn't that like cheating? We can't do this 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Why not? The safety word is banana. It is so refreshing to be with someone who likes to fuck outside the box. This is the Touch of Flavor podcast. Dating and relationship advice by kinksters for kinksters. Join us as we tackle BDSM, sex, non-monogamy, and how to build extraordinary relationships in an ordinary world. And now your hosts, Cassie and Rigel. So hello everyone, we're going to do another Q&A episode today. I want to give you a little disclaimer <laughs> before we start, which is that you may hear dogs in this episode. You want to tell the background, the disclaimer? Sure. So we had a friend who is watching her friend's dogs. So these aren't even her 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 puppers, it's someone else's puppers. And... In the midst of all that, it ended up flooding where she was at, and we were trying to help out. We said, you know, hey, you know, we can get you out of the flood stuff because her car is actually flooded in at this point. And her car is not flooded, but she can't get it out of the driveway. Yeah. Well, she said it's up to the car now. Sweet. So not safe driving conditions, but there was a way to get her out of there without all that. So we were like, okay. We're going to pack up the van. We're going to bring up a crate because we're not sure how the dogs are going to do on the tribe and stuff like that. And we're going to do all that. And we're going to go rescue the pretty from the flood because I like pretties, not drowned, right? No one wants a pretty that's drowned. So we were going to go up and, and save the pretty from the flood and be all heroic and whatnot. And we get up the roads a ways and just far enough to be annoying. Yeah. Well, so like like 15 20 miles ish. Yeah, something like that. So we're at this light and the 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 van starts kind of going and and starts shaking. And I look over and I'm like, "Oh no, the check engine light is on." By the way, I'm not driving. Rigel is. But I do watch the the dashboard quite often because Rigel has a little bit of a lead foot and I'm constantly watching how fast he's driving. No offense. It's just the truth. Don't look at me like it's that. It's not offensive. I'm not going any slower it's just because you're watching. So it's fine. <laughs> it's nice to be able to be like, we're, we're driving through Pennsylvania where they, the police officers have nothing better to do and you're going 30 miles over the speed limit. So anyway, it was not on prior and now it was. And it starts kind of sputtering, and it seems like it's clearing up, and then it just kind of stopped working. So we ended up having to pull into this little thrift shop. Was it a thrift shop? No, it's like an antique store. It's it's like an antique store that's set up like an old general store, but it's actually an antique store. It's not actually a general store, but it's set up to look like... Yeah, go figure. But yeah, no, that's what it is. Yeah, I've been I've been in there before. They've got a lot of awesome stuff. I didn't go in this time, but they they have like very interesting stuff. So anyway, we get towed and we say to the pretty, look, we tried. It's okay. Cassie if- sends a picture like, look, we really did have to have our car towed. We did not just want to come and get you. <laughs> I had to show proof. 
So we go through all that and she was able to find a ride to come stay here and bring her puppers. Well, our big pupper thinks that they are just amazing and he is 173 pound Great Dane. They're little, little tiny dogs and they're not having it. So that's why you may or may not hear some little yips in the background. So we apologize in they advance. They aren't killing each other. No, they're not. They're just... They're very, not even in the same room. <laughs> they're just communicating through the house to each other about their presence. So we apologize in advance. Uh, but with that, I think we will get to the questions. So our first question today is... Travis from Maryland. Found the show last week and have been catching up on back episodes. I was starting to feel like everyone talking about Polly and Kink lives on the West Coast, so it was awesome to find someone in my area. You mentioned in a past episode you guys were looking at adoption, and your lawyer made a comment about would you rather set case law or would you rather get it done? I'm curious to hear more about your thought process on that. On one hand, you guys are in a position where you don't have as much to risk as most, and setting the precedent could be really helpful to some people who are not as lucky. On the other hand, that's a lot of work, stress, money, and who knows what else in an already difficult process. So Travis is talking about episode 26. I think. I'm actually, so Travis is talking about a comment that we made offhand in an episode that I think was 26, but I don't want people to hold us to that because it wasn't, (laughs) it wasn't actually the main thrust of the episode and I'm not, it was just, it was just an offhand comment. I think it was 26, but I'm not hundred percent sure. Yeah, and, and episode 26 is what poly folks should know about the law with... Um, ben Shanker. Yeah, so we talked about some law stuff in there, and I think that's what he's referring to. But guys, don't hold us to that. So in a podcast episode, we were talking about, <laughs> we went and saw an adoption lawyer, and you know we've been doing some family planning stuff, things like that. And obviously with us being poly, very out, as out as out can be, it wasn't something that we could really hide, so we wanted to talk to someone and really find out, you know, the logistics of being able to adopt. Yeah, there's there are certain questions that if you're looking to adopt come up in the adoption process. And, you know, we are quite openly poly A. You know, we have a partner who lives with us who, you know, goes to the kids' school affairs. I mean, so it, that that's something that's going to come out in the process. And knowing that, you know, we kind of wanted to get in front of the ball, so to speak. Yeah. So when we were talking with the lawyer, one of the things that he had said to us was, there's two ways of going about this. There is, you know, do you want to make case law? Like, do you want to make this a point? Or do you want to get it done? I think the exact wording was, or do you actually want to get it done? Which I feel like is even more on the point. Yeah. Even more on the nose. So, Travis, this is an awesome question, but really the answer to it for us is it was the second part of that comment. For us, you know, if we're we're planning to do this family thing and we're we're looking at children, it's not something that we want to take years to do. Like we actually that's what we want to do. It's kind of how we want to go about it. Um it's more for us about building a family than it is about making the case law. And although I can appreciate those who take the time to do those things and are in a position to do so, it really is a personal decision. And for us, the priority was in our family planning. Yeah, it's kind of something you judge on a case by case basis. I mean, we do do this with a lot of stuff. And I do agree with you that we, 
don't know if I want to say we have less to lose so much, um, but we are far more out than most people. You know, we have contacts, we have support. So I agree with you, it would be easier. But, you know, the end of the, the day thing for us is if it takes years to adopt the kid, we're not interested in adopting a kid at that point. So it kind of defeats the whole purpose. So for us, it comes down to timing. You know, I think that's kind of a personal decision that you make on a case-by-case basis. All right. Our next question is from Stacy, 26, from Virginia. I've been playing at home with my husband for five years, just went to my first BDSM party at a venue in Baltimore. The staff was welcoming and people were nice. After our face-sitting, bondage, and impact scene, I had many folks comment positively on my sexual techniques and skills. I appreciated the praise, but it made me feel awkward and has turned me away from possibly going out to play again. Do I just need to get over it? Is there a polite way to say I don't want to talk about my scenes? I've got to say it. This question, Stacy, comes across as quite pleased with yourself about your scene, and kudos to you. Yeah, if you had a cool-ass scene, be proud. So I think some of this comes down to understanding that it's a culture thing. Yeah, so the interesting thing when you're talking about public spaces is why do people go out to public spaces? Partially, it's kind of a community thing, right? Like, it's cool to go out and see people, but really, you don't hang out with people at dungeon spaces. That's really more what munches and, I mean, primarily, what munches and things like that are for. And you can go out to learn if there's a class and stuff, but primarily, people go out to dungeons. Well, so, I, I saw this um, this Venn diagram a while back that I'm, I'm actually going to have to pull up because I've referenced it a couple times, so I need to find it. But it talks about the public scene and the private scene. And, you know, there there's plenty of people in the private scene like you who do stuff at home who don't go anywhere. I mean, we were some of those people for a while. And there's lots of people for whom that's what they do and they never do go out. And that's perfectly fine. And, you know, so the question becomes, why do people go out to public spaces? And this, this Venn diagram-y thing that I saw basically suggested that the people who go out to public spaces are some combination usually of open so you know they're going out because they might find other people to do stuff with or exhibitionists so they're going out because they like people to watch them or voyeurs so they're going out because they like to be watched and you know that some combination of those things is why most people go to public things in the first place instead of just playing at home so that's kind of the uh the culture that you're confronting when you're talking about this issue and for a lot of folks getting praise is part of that fun, right? Like if I like to be watched, I'm somebody who likes people watching. A lot. A lot. So someone coming up and being like, that's hot, I take it as a compliment. And that's what it's really meant for. Is It's meant as a compliment. It's not meant to make you feel awkward. And it's kind of just part of the culture. So it kind of comes with the territory is sort of what I'm trying to say is that it, it, it really kind of comes with that space. So there's really kind of two things that you can do here. The first is you can tell people that, you know, you're uncomfortable with them commenting on your scenes and that will probably get those people to stop. They'll probably respect that. But the problem is that's something that you're going to have to do on an individual basis. So it's not really going to solve the problem, right? Because you're going to be constantly telling people and then the next person who comes along, you're going to have to tell them as well. Um, Second thing you can do is you can, even in a public space, there's like, you know, the the play spaces that are right out in the middle of the floor near the social area, right? Like a lot of places have the social area somewhere in the dungeon. And there's the place that's off in a smaller room, kind of in the corner, more in the dark. 
So one thing that you can do is you can pick those spaces in a play space that are more private. And I have a little creative thing that you could try. So I literally just thought of this off the top of my head. Our partner, Amanda, she does rope. She does a lot of stuff where she does self-tying. So it's an independent scene. And for some reason, people don't seem to understand that even if I'm doing an independent scene, meaning just myself without a partner, it's still a fucking scene. So I went out and I got her signs that were, you know, scene in progress, don't talk to me, et cetera, et cetera. Possibly putting something out before you play, like getting a sign that's like, I, I feel awkward when people talk to me. Please don't ask me about my scene. And putting that like in front of wherever you're playing may actually help avoid that a little bit. I don't think that's necessarily going to solve it for you because it is that culture and people may not see the sign, may not read the sign, but it's a creative way to maybe kind of knock that down a little bit. Yeah, we just got her like laminated, uh, like laminated pieces of paper that kind of like, you know, you could fold flat and then they fold it up into triangles. I do think that if you're doing that, you know, one thing that should not be happening, and it doesn't sound like it is, but just to clarify, is people should not be coming up to you and interrupting your scene to comment or question or those kinds of things. That's considered quite rude. So the only thing I'm, I'm thinking is that if you do do something with these signs, that you would probably need to specify somehow that you're talking about after the scene, because I think a lot of people will think that you're talking about during the scene, because that's, you know, pretty common etiquette is not to interrupt you during the scene. So... Uh, if you do try the sign thing, you may need to put something in. This is referring to after the scene. Yeah, like as well. I'm, I'm, I'm uncomfortable talking about my scenes. Please don't ask me later, or something like that. Like it's something along those lines. And you can. I don't think any of this stuff is going to be a hundred percent solution because at the end of the day, you're going out, you're doing stuff in public around people who, you know, like I said, in that culture where that's the case. And and uh, I, I don't think anything's going to completely solve this for you. But I think that some of those steps might help mitigate. So there's a second part to Stacy's question. Which was, have either of you ever been complimented after a scene by someone and it made you feel awkward? If so, how do you, did you handle it? Yeah, so this is, this is kind of funny in a current sense because we have, we have certain venues that we actually get invited out to to do kind of performance-y scenes. Demonstrations. Like scenes, yeah. Yeah, demonstrations, I mean, but demonstrations I consider more educational, like scenes that are intended to like be flashy and draw a crowd type of thing. So that that should probably give you an idea where we're at with it now. Uh, but it wasn't always that way, certainly. Yeah. One of the first parties that we ever went to together, because there was a couple things I went to without you and people thought that Rigel wasn't real because I kept going to munches and stuff without him. But uh, one of the first parties we went to together I had someone come up and was like, you know, it was it was very much done in a polite way, like shook my hand, said, hello, nice to meet you. And they were like, that scene was amazing. You know, it was hot. You know, all of us over here are horny because they, we just watched this thing happen and it's amazing. And at first I was like, oh, that's a little weird. Like someone telling me that they're like hot and bothered over like a scene that I did or like that what I did was hot was kind of a little weird and a little awkward. And what I did was I just tried to take it at the value that it was being presented, which was it was supposed to be a compliment. And I kind of went with that. It did make me feel a little awkward for a minute, but that person ended up being a pretty good friend of ours. Um, we've 
you know, spend a lot of time around this person now. And it's pretty awesome to be able to have a friend who that's how we met was seeing one of our scenes and being like, that was cool. Yeah. So I, I can't think of anything offhand. I'm quite sure that some of them happened. Um, but, you know, this was we've been in the scene a pretty significant time now. And I just honestly can't remember anything. What I will say, though, is that the times. So nothing that I would I would see in the category of what you're saying. Now, what I will say is sometimes that I have been irritated or things like that with people coming up and talking is when it's really something else kind of masquerading as polite conversation. Like they're acting like they're complimenting you, but really they're trying to pick you up or really they're kind of actually trying to like put you down and build themselves up about how they're better or those kinds of things. So those are the things that I find irritating. And I think that those can get especially irritating if you just sit on that and let people do that kind of stuff and don't say anything to them. So certainly be willing to stand up for yourself. I don't know if you are a dominant. It kind of seems to me from the question that you might be. Um, and you know, if that's the case, sometimes female dominance can have it a little more difficult with getting people to take them seriously and, and not try to dom them, uh, you know, outside of their scenes. Or at least she's a top. Right. right. Like at least she's a top and even female tops. Or yeah. Yeah. Well, I was saying in, in pertaining to the scene. So, right. yeah. And and females, even as just tops, get that same, I'm going to outdom you crap. Everybody gets it. But females, you know, it's, it's honest to say that females do get it more. So just be willing, uh, willing to stand up for yourself. And and most people, don't get me wrong, most people are really polite. Right. But this is stuff that will happen occasionally. Um, and you know, if, uh, if you don't sit there and take it, it's something that will actually make you more comfortable, more comfortable about as well. Really, you know, Stacey, I think what might be a good idea and what I encourage you to do is go to a few more parties. This was your first one. Obviously things are going to feel more awkward your first go round. Uh, you know, that whole saying it's only kinky the first time. So maybe go out, maybe, Give this a couple more tries because you're talking about, you know, maybe I won't go back out. But give it give it a couple more tries. See if this is something that's more workable for you. And if it was, maybe just that newness. Our next question is from uh, somebody who wished to remain anonymous. And actually, this came in as an email. So I'm going to actually read it like it came in. It says, I've done all the things, but I'm undateable. Uh, I've tried things from dating sites to munches. I've been in the scene for several years. There's the effects of abuse, spectrum aspects, life situation, etc. So I'm undateable. All that said, I still need touch. I've done a couple cuddles for hire, but my financial situation just doesn't allow for that on a regular basis. I can find myself going weeks or even months without any significant touch. What can I do? Signed, broken. Oh, that's so sad. Anyone who signs their name broken, that's just, oh, that's sad. So I'm going to address a couple different things here. The, the first thing is is getting that need for touch and being in a situation where you can get cuddles and things like that and maybe not have to put out that large of financial stuff. And there's definitely resources to be able to do that. If you go on like Meetup and, and things like that and you search cuddle, that's going to pop up. Yeah, you can find cuddle parties and cuddle groups, like private cuddle groups on Meetup. Yeah, and definitely go on Meetup. Look for those things. A lot of those things are 
free or they're very, very cheap. There's something where it's like a munch where you bring food and you cuddle or things like that. Look on FetLife as well. Look in the groups there around your area. I think Meetup might be more helpful because I... I do too. Yeah. I, a meetup's probably a better spot, but you can look on FetLife as well. Yeah. Um, and so there's, there's, there's opportunities for that touch. And the other thing that you could do is if there absolutely is nothing like that, if there is nothing that isn't super expensive to do as far as cuddling, which I, I do believe you can probably find some, you could even host your own, right? Like you could start that, start, start a way to have maybe like a cuddle party somewhere, have people bring food and hang out. And that would be a good way to kind of get that touch. You could do that. And that would also give you the opportunity to connect with people. Now, I'm saying opportunity. I'm not saying the expectation of finding somebody to date. But the more you're interacting with people, the more people you get to know, the more opportunities there are. So I think the the getting cuddling part of this, as I said, is the easier aspect. The bigger thing is sort of the mindset. Like you seem like you're doing a lot of the things right, right? Like you're going to things in the kink community and you're going out to munches and you're going to dating sites. I don't think that that is probably what you're doing wrong because you're talking about wrong and things like that. You talk about yourself being undateable, which kind of goes into and feeds into the idea of being unlovable. And when we think that we are unlovable or we're undateable, we're looking at ourselves as unworthy, like we're not deserving. And with that, when we kind of get to that place of thinking that no one's going to love us, no one's going to want to be with us, we start going into believing that we're not worthy of them doing that and that we have to take whatever we can get. And we stop being selective about our partners. We start looking at things online and being like, I'll take whoever. And okay, cool, I'll do whatever. Right. And so the problem with that, I mean, is twofold. Obviously, when you're not being selective, you wind up with the wrong people. But the other problem is, you know, when you're getting desperate, that's something that people can sense. And they can sense when you're getting desperate. They can sense when you aren't being selective about uh, who you're picking as a partner. They can pick up on when you're just not confident. And, you know, that that combination of things is not appealing to people. I mean, I, I don't know any other way to say it. I mean, that, that, that you know, being desperate is not appealing it's not to sexy. potential partners. It's not sexy. It's not appealing. Um, so... What can you do about that? Because that's honestly a, a huge, huge problem. I mean, because the problem is when you're desperate, it's because you're in a place where stuff's not working. And then so you're desperate. So then it's hard, hard to attract people. So then you're still not with people. So it's kind of this vicious cycle. What we tend to recommend to people when they get to that point is to take a break from trying to date. There's kind of this cultural thing of us having to be with somebody to have value for ourselves. And that's just not true. One of the things that is incredibly helpful is to realize that it's okay to not currently be dating anybody, right? That's absolutely fine. It's absolutely fine to take time to take care of yourself and to do stuff with yourself and to work on yourself. And that's absolutely okay. And once you can get into that place of being okay 
with not having somebody, you get out of that place of desperation and it makes you more attractive. Yeah, confidence makes you more attractive. I was going to say the confidence persuades other people. People go, oh my gosh, you know, you're really sure of yourself. You know where you're at. And that is incredibly sexy. That That's one of the things that people look for in partners. So I would say if you're at this point, if you're really, really getting to that place of not feeling worthy and not deserving, maybe take a little time away from the dating. Possibly, you know, find some of these cuddle groups, start your own, do some socializing, dive into your hobbies and things like that that you really enjoy and get to a place where you're okay being single and it'll be easier to then not be single. Our next question is from Nicole28 in Florida. I have vulvodynia and PIV sex is very uncomfortable. Uh, He doesn't enjoy giving oral. I want to have aroused experiences, but I feel my boyfriend just feels picked on every time I talk about trying to change our sexual relationship to anything other than PIV. He is full of sex negativity. Is there any way to have conversations around kink and stuff in a way where he becomes more open and excited about new ideas? So do you want to describe what vulva, vulva I can't say it. I'm not Vulvodynia? Yeah, what, what that is. Yeah, uh, basically it's just pain of the vulva that is doesn't have any like easily discernible cause. So it's like not easily treatable. It's, it's chronic pain, chronic pain of the vulva. Okay, here's the thing. Obviously, there's probably some feels that have come up in this conversation. Like as far as like his interest in PIV and not in oral, things like that. And that can make this even more difficult. But when you say like he's sex negative, that probably means that conversations around sex are not very comfortable to begin with. Yeah. And the other thing I'll say is that while, you know, there's probably some things, more so feelings um, and maybe a couple of practical things that are specific to your situation, the conversation around the woman trying to get a man to kind of expand the box of his horizons outside of PIV is actually not an uncommon question. One of the things that I think would be helpful in this situation because of the disorder that you have, the 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 thing that you're that you're dealing with, there's probably a lot of negative feelings around sex that have happened. If you've had uncomfortable sex or uncomfortable experiences, things like that, there's probably some thought on his part and maybe even yours that when you go to talk about sex, it's going to be unfun. It's going to be a nagging thing or something that is going to cause you guys to basically feel crappy about sex. Perhaps instead of trying to have this conversation away of like, let's sit down and figure out what activities we can do, make it fun, right? Like make this an experience that could be more playful, things like that. So something like maybe talking dirty, like bringing up something like, I would really, really like this thing. And that works even for folks who are not in this situation where there's already negativity, but people who are like shy about bringing something new to their partner. Yeah, so there's a couple tips that we tend to give people who are looking to get their partner to open up to new things. I mean, I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of summarize because I could honestly probably go on a whole episode about this in and of itself. But... First thing is, when you're bringing stuff up to your partner, you want to think about the timing. 
What does this mean? Well, first off, if you guys have been having problems around sex, this isn't probably a conversation you want to have when it's time for sex. Or immediately after sex. Or definitely immediately after sex. Yes, very bad mojo on that one. So, um, but what else does it mean? It means that this isn't a conversation to have when you're arguing, when your partner's already had a very stressful day, right? These are conversations that you want to have when things are going well, like when things are comfortable, like those are the times to have these conversations, especially with some of the negative stuff that's already built up in your guy's relationship around sex. Once you've kind of got some thought as to the timing of when you're discussing things, you want to bring things up in a non-threatening way. And we'll just talk about three of the many ways that you can do that. Yeah. So the first one I said already, which is kind of like dirty talk, right? Like when you're being playful or if you're starting to do things or you're interacting or even if you're just goofing off and you're walking by them and, and being sexy, saying something dirty is always helpful to bring up because if it's something that gets shut down, well, I was just I was just talking, you know, naughty to you and it can be easily dismissed as just a fantasy or playful thing. Right. And this is something you can do during sex, right? Because this isn't like this isn't like the serious like hey, like let's have a conversation about our sex life. Like this is something fun and it's something that like Cassie said, you can pass it off because people say all kinds of crazy shit when they're dirty talking, right? So, you put it out there during sex, either your partner bites on it and then it can lead to a discussion later, right? During the good times or what? What is that face? Um, just you said people can say all kinds of things. And I was thinking about the last man on earth where she's like, put it in the refrigerator. What did you bring to the picnic? What did you bring to the picnic? Um, <laughs> so, uh, so you get dirty talk, right? Porn erotica right if you guys watch porn together you can find some porn that has some stuff in it that you might be interested and see how your partner reacts like now this isn't kind of how you bring it to them right you don't bring it to them like hey i'm gonna put on this porn of things that i would like us to do so keep a close eye on it this is hey it would be really sexy if we watched some porn together and you put on some stuff that you may be interested in and the same way as the dirty talk right either they bite on it and they're like huh that's kind of sexy or they're like what the fuck is this shit and, you know, that exact activity may not be the conversation to have currently. Like, maybe wait till you guys are a little further along on stuff. Uh, the next thing you can do is accidentally leaving stuff around. So what is this? This is, uh, you know, like you have something that you're interested in and you leave the website up on your computer or you accidentally leave a magazine out or you... You have a book that you have hidden in the uh, paperwork that you have next to your toilet that you read. Yeah, like, yeah, like, like shit like that, right? So, and it's another way. And so, so what you're seeing with all these things is these are ways that when you have a partner who you're uncomfortable bringing stuff up with, right? In an ideal world, you have your partner and you're able to be like, sit down and be like, look, here's what I want to do sexually. I want to, I want to do you with a 12 inch baton, right? And then the negotiation begins, which is from the wet spots, if people aren't recognizing this, this quote. <laughs> um, but a lot of people are in that place, right? They, they have a lot of discomfort around sex. They have a lot of insecurities around sex. They have a lot of bad experiences. And you can't just sit down with them and be like, hey, I'm unhappy sexually. I'd like to try this freaky shit. Like, they, they're not going to respond well to that. It would be ideal, but they're not going to respond well. So these things that we're talking about are ways that you can... 
introduce ideas to your partner and th- see how they responded in a non-threatening way. And you can then that can lead to further conversations if it seems like they might be interested in any of those things. Yeah, so those are some ideas. One thing that you want to keep in mind with all this is you do want to take stuff slow. Like if you're introducing 20 million things to your partner and you're like, I want to do all the things that can feel really overwhelming to somebody, especially if it's something where maybe sex hadn't been good for a while. Like, yeah, and this is also where you don't jump straight from like, hey, let's try spanking to hooking a violet wand up to their nads. Like, Yeah, when I was saying take it slow, I'm talking about in both ways. Like take it slow as far as like not necessarily like overwhelming your partner, but also take it slow with trying things. Like there's a lot of things that look really hot and interesting and fun. And you can't go from like, I've never tied my partner before to I'm going to do a full suspension with five people. Like you you have to kind of take those little small steps along the way. Yeah. So I'm going to throw one more thing in here. I'm going to suggest you take a look at our desire map. So the desire map is a tool that we created that allows partners to kind of indicate to each other when they're in the mood for stuff and what they're in the mood for without having to actually uh, come out and ask their partner. And, um, you know, especially in the situation you're in where you guys have had a lot of uncomfortable conversations around sex and there's probably questions people aren't comfortable with, you know, certain questions being asked on a regular basis, like him constantly asking you if you're in the mood for PIV, right, is is not going to be incredibly helpful with what's been going on with you guys. So uh, the desire map would be a way that he doesn't have to ask you, but you can indicate when you're in the mood for PIV, right? Or when you're not and you're in the mood for other stuff. So we will link to that in the show notes. We just wrote an entire post, like a step-by-step post on how to create your own desire map. And that will be in the show notes. We'll link to that at atouchofflavor.com forward slash zero four zero. And you can go take a look at the show notes. And I'd suggest that you take a look at that link and Think about possibly giving that a shot. I think you guys will find that helpful. Our next question is from Tiana, 34, Pennsylvania. And I apologize if I messed up your name. I'm not positive I said it correctly. But what she says is, I'm in a relationship where my husband and I are with another couple all together, except the men are straight and are just interested in the family dynamic. We have group sex together and we're all planning and trying for kids where her and I don't know whom the father is. Between the focus on trying to get us pregnant and the other guys not being physical, it sometimes feels like someone is left out of the mix. I want everyone to get attention every time. The guys say they're fine. Am I overreacting? Any suggestions on how to make group interactions where two people don't interact sexually less complicated? So... I think the important thing to address is that when you're doing group sex situations, things tend to not always be completely equal, like with everybody, and they kind of move in circles, right? Like sometimes one person might get a little bit more attention, somebody else might get a little bit more attention. So trying to have it be where everybody's getting the same amount of attention is, first of all, really not a goal that is achievable, but it's also something where with that tit for tat kind of thing can really lead to a lot of weird situations and feelings to begin with. Something you might want to do with that is consider like how your guys are doing this. Like if 
you're feeling like someone is getting left out. Maybe this time there's a little more focus here. Maybe this time there's a little more focus there and, and letting things kind of naturally happen. But also, you know, maybe, you know, two of you sneak off and you're like, hey, let's plan a really sexy thing for partner A because partner A didn't, you know, whatever. So make it fun. Make sure that things are moving in a cycle. There isn't anybody who's getting all of the attention all the time. But you're also adding a lot of things into the mix with this. You have two partners and that's why I said this is with group sex for all all people. Yeah, I will I will say just just in general, there's an adjustment there with group sex, right? When you're having like one-on-one sex, you're used to either like one person's paying attention to the other person and then there's like probably like some kind of reciprocation in some fashion at some point, at some time, maybe not, you know, whatever. Or you're both kind of doing like especially like if you're having like sex like you're both kind of doing stuff to each other at once right group sex doesn't tend in my experience to flow that way it it tends to be way more of like a circular thing now you start adding more and more people into the mix you know I, i assume that dynamic changes most of my group sex experiences with like three to four people but like it it like like my experience there's a lot of like and now there's a couple of people focusing on this person. And now most people are focusing on this person. And now most people are focusing on this other person over here. And it kind of moves in a circle. Yeah. And I've, I've seen, not personally, but like I go to a lot of things, even larger groups where it's kind of still circular, but it's almost like a wave. Like these two might be interacting, but now these two are interacting. And then this is happening all together. And then this is happening separate. So it, it's movement. The, the, the important thing is not the circle but there's there's movement and shift in where the attention lies, and that it definitely does does take some getting used to because there is a difference in that dynamic in group sex that is kind of hard to even verbalize in a podcast. But it it does it does take some adjustment just even normally. So now we're on to what you're dealing with. Yeah. So first of all, you are trying to get pregnant. Both of you are working on on doing that as as the women in the relationship. You get both are trying to have children. Um, Which can kind of make sex clinical to some extent, even at the best of times. Yeah. Like, like it's, it's timing, who's ovulating when. So if you guys are, are really, really pursuing the whole like getting pregnant thing, which I kind of got from it being added in here as something that's important, there's probably some timing stuff and, and things like that. So maybe during this time, this partner is getting more attention because that partner's not to be like completely like out there, but that partner needs more semen because that partner is trying to get pregnant. Like there's like a technical aspect to it. And then you also have the two partners who don't interact. So that can add into it. But what I would suggest is during the times when it's not like ovulation times, when it's not things where you guys are, are pressed on who's doing what to try to balance it out on the opposite times, like just kind of keep an eye out. Like for that well and, and the thing Being is even fault. even even in a group dy- even in a group dynamic right it, it, there's still a place for dyad sex too i just want to put that out there yeah like i don't feel like that should be left by the wayside and all this like um you know you still do want to be making not sex necessarily but physical uh, attention yeah, intimacy time yeah intimacy, intimacy time. time so that's something to keep in mind too um you know so the, the last thing i want to say here is you say well, they say they're okay. Here's the thing. And we talk, I, I, you know, this is actually one of the things that I harp on people about in our program. There's a real problem. Um, and it's not a, it's not a bad intention. It's a 
problem. It's a good intention problem, but it's still a problem where our partners say they're okay, but we assume and act like they're not okay. And, you know, that, that's not something that we can do. I mean, it, it, there, there, there's a whole series of issues that, that come up in that. You have to be able to trust your partner to be an adult and to be able to put out their needs, put out their wants, and put out when they're okay and when they're not okay. Because the problem is without that, there's no way to negotiate anything or be sure that any of your agreements are solid. And you can't guess for them, right? So I'd say if your partners say that they're okay, you need to treat them like they are in fact okay, right? Just because you're not comfortable with them not interacting doesn't mean they're not comfortable with them interacting. And you don't want to, you don't want to make assumptions and take actions because they're saying that they're okay, but you're saying, well, I don't think they really are. That, that's, not, that's not an assumption that you can make. Our next question is from Ted, 22 years old from New Jersey. I am a virgin Christian, and I am saving sex until marriage. It's a personal choice. That being said, I am open-minded to learning things, and I've been masturbating to porn for several years. I enjoy watching sex. I'm fascinated by different activities. I'm enjoying learning of new methods, positions, and kinks. It is giving me some ideas on what I might like to explore. Porn is my main outlet for sexual curiosity, but I have a concern about the amount of porn I've seen over the years and the effects that it may have on a relationship with a future partner. I like hardcore stuff, and I'm not sure if that will scare away my future wife. Do you think this could be a potential problem after I get married? Ted, I want to start this off by congratulating you on possibly being the most courageous person to ever write in here. Because writing into a show about sex that is hosted by two people who are very close to atheist. <laughs> as a virgin religious person is amazing. And I, I actually seriously applaud you for that and for wanting to learn. So, you want to start on this? Sure. So, first off, I'm glad that you're open-minded. You know, obviously, you know, you are. You've been listening to the show. You wrote in. So... I do want to just kind of step in and say, for a lot of very Christian people, there's this idea that porn is bad, right? Like, and masturbating is bad. Yeah. It seems like you have dealt with that with yourself and your religion, and, and you're handling that well. Kudos. But just recognizing that porn isn't bad, it's like porn addiction that becomes a problem yeah you can you can so porn right watching porn isn't bad there's nothing wrong with watching porn watching porn is amazing there's a couple problems i'm gonna address one in a minute but you know the main one becomes there's a difference between watching porn and being addicted to porn and being addicted to anything is a problem being addicted to sex is a problem being addicted to coffee is a problem. Being addicted to going out and eating fast food is a problem. Right. So, being anything. addicted to anything is always unhealthy. So I think kind of the first question in talking about, you know, concern about amounts of porn is, are you addicted to porn? Like, are other parts of your life suffering? Like, can you not hold down a job because you have to stay home and watch porn? Can you not go out and date somebody because you got to stay home and watch porn? So... Those are, you know, that, that's kind of the first thing, right? So porn is not bad. You're, you know, if you are addicted to porn, then yeah, that could, that could certainly be bad. So I'm going I'm to address this future wife thing in, in two sections. First, could your future wife be scared away by the porn that you like? Because you ask about the effects that it 
can have on a relationship with a future partner. And then you talk about, you know, you're not sure if hardcore stuff will scare away your future wife. Will hardcore porn scare away your future wife? Possibly, if, especially if she's religious and especially if you're showing her your hardcore porn, that could scare her away. I certainly don't think it's necessary to show her your hardcore porn or even necessarily to bring up in casual conversation that you watch hardcore porn. Yeah, like sort of how we were talking to Nicole earlier about sort of taking things slow, introducing your partner, like definitely don't be like, hey, let's go watch porn together. And it's like people getting like, you know, fuck sawed, like don't do that. That's probably not the best idea. So especially if you're looking at someone who is part of your church, someone who's part of your religion, someone who's like, you know, very much on that 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 path where even a little kink is a little scary. Or even a little porn is a little scary. Yeah, that wouldn't be the place to go. I'm not necessarily like saying hide it, but like I wouldn't be like, hey, this is our first time spending alone time. Hey, welcome time. to my house. Here's my hardcore porn collection. Yeah, <laughs> not not the thing to do. So I, I would I would approach this from the idea of baby steps with a partner. Maybe try some some soft kinky stuff. You know, maybe even before you have sex. I don't know what your belief system is around sex, but... He says he's waiting till marriage. For sex, but not necessarily kinky stuff. Hey, religious guys, you guys blur all of those things. I can never keep up with it. I got to be honest. Like, the religious people, like, blur stuff. Like... Technical virginity and that kind of stuff. Let's keep this with how most people believe, although they may not actually do, which is any kind of sex before marriage is unacceptable. Okay. Well, if, 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 if interacting physically is okay, maybe doing some things with your partner that aren't like actual sex, but could be maybe a little kinky. Right. I think where the real problem comes in short of, like I said, like taking your partner home and showing them your hardcore porn collection first date, that's an easy problem to solve, right? I think the more difficult problem actually comes into years of watching porn and the expectations that that builds up around sex that are quite different from actual sex and how that kind of collides once you actually start trying to move that, move into a place of actually having real sex. Yeah, you want to keep in mind that... Porn sex is is not sex. Yeah, porn, porn sex, first of all, is very inaccurate. Like... You don't watch the 45 minutes it took to warm that ass up before somebody put a big giant dong in it in porn. You just see the the, the big ass thing going in, in the ass, like stuff like that. And and I'm, I mean, I'm using that example as an and extreme. And porn is very male centric. Yeah. And even more unrealistic. Yeah. So I took it to the to the ass place because it was just the extremist that I could go. But it is very much not a depiction of reality. And that's a very important thing to keep in mind when you're moving things with a partner, when you're trying things. Don't have the bar set to the porn standard. Yeah. I mean, this is one of those things that there isn't a great solution for, right? I mean, at some point, you're going to have to kind of dive in and do it. I think you need to kind of do it with the, the thought that this is all new to you and you don't actually know anything and kind of try and try and approach it with, uh, you know, an empty cup, so to speak and go from there with stuff. I mean, there, there is some porn that's more realistic, but at the end of the day, porn is porn. is porn. Yeah, take it for being an idea. 
something that you might want to try, but going with it with the understanding that it may not actually be what you just watched. Like, huh. It almost certainly will not be what you just yeah, watched. Yeah, like don't have that expectation. I'm going to pitch one more thing in here, even though you didn't ask, which is our thoughts on saving sex until marriage. Actually, I'll let you go on this tangent because you just had a, had the conversation with our kid, re- our teenager recently. Yeah, so um, Man Cub, some of you guys might have heard his podcast. He was on one at one point. Our kiddo was talking to us, and it's, it's funny because he's raised by poly adults. His mom's a sex educator, but I feel like our, our kiddo is kind of more conservative. I guess it's that rebellion thing, right? Like you got to have, have that. But he was, he was talking about, you know, I, I, I'm monogamous and things like that, which is totally cool. I'm like, great, you know, whatever works for you, dude. And he was like, I'm, I'm pretty stuck on the idea that I want to save myself until marriage. And it was some of the things that he had learned in his health class at high school and, and just thinking about it. And what I said was, hell no. I told him I, you know, I would support him marrying whomever, you know, he ever wanted to marry, whether, you know, whatever gender, sex, anything, you know, I I don't care. I will not support someone that he has not lived with for a while and he has not slept with. And I know that's a very funny thing for a mom to say, but deep down, I have a belief that there's a lot of problems with not knowing if you're compatible with your partner. You're talking about being a Christian. You're talking about marriage. This is something that you are planning for the rest of your life. And if you connect with this person and you get married and you've tried nothing, you've done nothing with this person, you have no idea what your compatibility is, you're kind of stuck, right? You find out this person is not okay with trying any of this kinky stuff or this person and you are not compatible at all sexually, you're then stuck. So my my personal belief is is that before you ever make a huge commitment to somebody on a relationship level, you should probably be intimate with them. Yeah, it comes down to this whole thing of we kind of tend to play this game where we put on this front to the world that sexual compatibility isn't important. But it really is, right? This is why, I mean, this is one of the huge reasons why there's divorce all over the place and infidelity and all these kinds of things. Uh, There's a lot of other reasons, too, but a big part of it is because sexual compatibility is actually quite important, and, you know, we like to pretend that it's not, and and I think we feel like it's kind of honorable, right, for, like, no, love is the important thing, sexual compatibility is not important, but that shit's important, like, nobody should be fooling anybody about this, sexual compatibility is quite important, especially in a long-term relationship, and it can lead to serious relationship problems down the road, Marrying somebody that you have no idea if you're going to be sexually compatible with is a risky proposition. You're right. It is your personal choice. I would not try and pressure you any direction, but you asked us on our podcast and that's our opinion. So now you have it. Our next question is from Aaron. When it comes to disclosure with a partner who prefers to know everything, what do you do when another partner is uncomfortable with you sharing the sordid details? In other words, partner A feels more secure when every detail is disclosed, including details about partner B. But partner B isn't comfortable with you giving that info to partner A. One thing to understand is there's oversharing and then there's undersharing, right? So when you're talking about sharing information, it's a couple of things. How is this affecting partner A, right? 
So I'm not talking about that partner A wants to know every single detail, but what things would actually affect partner A. So things like suddenly you're not home every every other day because things with partner B has progressed and now you're spending more time. That might be something to have a conversation about. Like, hey, I'm, I'm spending more time with partner B. A lot of that comes down to more general information, not like the details of what you guys are doing sexually or what you're doing on your dates or things like that. But like, it's usually good to at least give some kind of broad overview that I know what my partner is up to, right? That partner B even exists, right? Like those, those, those general things and, and knowledge of just sort of how things are going. I had a, a client that I talked to a while back who, who was having exactly the same issue that you're talking about, where she had one partner who wants to know every detail about everything and another partner who, well, doesn't really want the other partner knowing anything about that. And one of the things that happened was she broke up with the partner who didn't want the other one to know anything about. And one day he was like, so how is partner B doing? And she says to partner A, well, we've been broken up for like three weeks. He was like, I didn't even know, right? Like I had no idea that there was even a breakup. So like you don't want to undershare to the point that your partner is completely blindsided by every change or anything that's going on. But oversharing means going into those details, those details that partner B doesn't want shared, your intimate moments, things like that, um, really is you know, that that's partner B's choice, right? Like partner B should not have their business spread to partner A. That That's really partner B's choice in the matter. Yeah. And I think that's really where this comes to is, you know, you don't want to overshare, you don't want to undershare, but you know, th- there is a grounding of consent in this whole issue. This is a line that gets kind of blurry with Polly sometimes, but at the end of the day, and especially I want to point out because you're talking about sordid details, which to me is clearly talking about like sexual details. But regardless of these things, right, whether or not partner, partner B, right, who isn't comfortable giving that info, I mean, this comes down to their privacy, right? If, if there's details that like, hey, like you guys did this, this and this during sex and partner B doesn't want partner A to know that and partner A wants to know, that's partner B's information to share, right? And there's some kind of, a, 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 I think, an ethical expectation of privacy in that conversation, Yeah. And when I was talking about that, I'm talking about just like the general information, you know, like I still have a partner, things like that. I kind of missed the sorted details when you read it. Yeah, sorted details. So when you're talking about like the the sexual aspects or the very intimate things, that really is up to partner B. The only thing I would say is there are certain things that partner A needs to make educated, informed, informed decisions about their own health. Yes. So um, things like if, you know, statuses change or what you guys are doing as far as protection, if, if there's a change in that sort of thing that may affect partner A, of course they need to know so they can make their own decisions. But beyond that, it's, it's really none of partner A's business. All right, guys. So that's going to be the last question that we did for our Q&A. Uh, we actually had a couple more that we didn't get to, but we're at about an hour and we've actually got another interview coming up here. So uh, we're going to stop this here. Any questions that we did not get to in this podcast, we'll answer on our next Q&A. 
And uh, speaking of, you know, interviews and things like that, because we do have another one coming right up that we're having to record, we are going to have some really awesome interviews coming up. So guys, stay tuned. It's going to be fun. Thanks for listening to the Touch of Flavor podcast, where we're building relationships outside of the box. Got a question about kink, power exchange, or open relationships that you've been holding on to for years? This is the place to ask it. Submit your question at atouchofflavor.com slash ask or leave us a voicemail at 833-ASK-TOF-1. Unless you want to say Volvodinia. No, I don't. Okay. No, that's all you. All right. <laughs> so I think the important thing to kind of touch on is that when you're in group sex... I'm really surprised that group sex is a word you're going to mix up. It's not a word I mixed up. It was a tongue twister, which will happen when you're doing group sex. Um, Okay. Boom. (laughs) Boom. (laughs) Let me try that one again. All right.